Welcome to the Reology Podcast. My name is Scott Johnson. Now, I'm not a trained theologian, nor do I have degrees in theology or the Bible. I'm just a regular guy who loves and follows God, but wanted to know if there was more to what I was experiencing in the world of church. This podcast is the collection of a journey to dig much deeper in the realm of faith. The word reology itself is kind of the study of the do-over, those two letters, R and E. When you put those in front of a verb, it means to do that verb again. So, reology is founded on the philosophy and the principle of stopping what I'm doing and thinking about why I'm doing it, especially when it comes to what I know about God, Jesus, and ultimately what this has to do with me. Now, if you're new to the podcast here, I would strongly encourage you to stop right now and go back and listen to the very first episode I think it'll give you a much better foundation of the conversation that I'm trying to start here. But if you're not new, well then, I wholeheartedly, sincerely welcome you back. Glad to have you with me on this journey. In 1597, there was a little story written called Romeo and Juliet by good old Bill Shakespeare. Bill penned the phrase, what's in a name? Romeo asked this bringing up a good point of debate since his family and Juliet's family were a feudin. Romeo had a good point. Just because his last name was associated with feuding against Juliet's family, that doesn't automatically mean that he should just follow suit and be against Juliet just because of their last names. So for this episode, I asked the same question that Romeo asked. What is in a name? I was born the third son of a couple in Bedford, Indiana. You might say I was a pleasant surprise for my parents, a.k.a. they had no idea that I was coming, didn't expect me at all. When it comes to names in our family, my parents had purpose naming my two older brothers. My oldest brother, Timothy Brent, was named after my biological father, Brent, My other brother, Troy Joseph, was named after my grandmother's maiden name, Troy, and my biological father's brother, Joe. But oddly enough, when it came to me, Scott David, there is absolutely no rhyme or reason as to my naming. Scott didn't come from anywhere specific, nor did David. And when I asked my mom why she named me Scott David, she just said, I don't know, I just kind of liked it. Names are interesting, no doubt. And as I've stated here before, in the Bible, people named their children with purpose and meaning, especially in the Old Testament. You don't have to look very far to see that. I mean, just look at the first names that we encounter in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve. Adam's name in Hebrew means man. And that's kind of a, well, duh, that fits. And then Eve, her name means to breathe insinuating the idea that God breathed life into these two human beings. Names uh, came about from situations as well, like with Abraham and Sarah. You know, they were told that they would have a child, even though they were well into their old age. And when Sarah heard this news, she scoffed at it and even laughed. So when Isaac, their firstborn son, came into the world, guess what his name means? to laugh. I mean, can you imagine your name being to laugh or laughed? 
So go ahead and read the book there, Genesis. Uh, I challenge you to do it. It's, it's full, chocked full of people who were named on purpose. It kind of reminds me of Native Americans and how they named their children. You know, I think of <laughs> names like Stands with a Fist or Dances with Wolves. They had purpose. So you'll see that the names are very, very unique and specific with purpose in the Old Testament. Mostly in the New Testament, we see people who are described by what they do or where they're from or what they're associated with. Names like James and John, sons of Zebedee, Matthew, the tax collector, Judas Iscariot, which Iscariot's not his last name. It literally means man of Kiriath. It's where he's from. Simon, the zealot. A zealot was an extremist political party, and he was a member of it. And then John, the baptizer, what he did. In the New Testament, the specific naming of children kind of fell to the wayside a little bit. This Jewish culture, instead, they named their children after their, their heroes of their religion, of their faith, and favorite phrases. So a very popular name like John, which was very popular, basically means Yahweh is gracious. Mary, a very, very popular girl's name, we see a ton of them in the New Testament, this actually comes from the Old Testament name Miriam, who is the sister of Moses. And we don't really know what Miriam's name means, because it's probably an Egyptian name. James, as I just mentioned before, a very popular name. It's the Greek form of the name Jacob, or Jacob, which means holder of the heel. Jacob and his brother Esau were born. Esau was born just barely before Jacob. Esau came out of the womb, and Jacob literally is holding on to his foot, his heel. Holder of the heel. And then we have names like Jesus, Yeshua, which is the Greek form of Joshua. And it means Yahweh is salvation. So even Jesus' name wasn't completely special to him, even though the angel told both Mary and Joseph to name him that. The reality is, is that there were probably tons of boys and men walking around with the name of Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. It was a very popular name. I think a lot of people think that only our Jesus had that name, but unfortunately that's just not true. Here's a little tidbit to kind of prove that, something I'm sure you, you did not know and probably might find a little shocking. In Matthew 27, when Jesus is in front of Pilate, who is the Roman governor of this region. There's also another man there as well, not just Jesus. A man, as we know him, called Barabbas. But this is not this man's real name. That is his zealot name. And as I said before, zealot was kind of this extreme religious political party group of people. The name Barabbas is actually a title. It's actually a phrase. The word Bar means son of, and Abba, which that probably sounds familiar to you, means the father. So it literally would mean son of the father. Or maybe even more specific, in the zealot world, son of God. And some ancient texts actually have his full name in this piece of scripture in Matthew 27 as Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus Yeshua 
Barabbas, son of the father, or in their world, maybe Jesus, son of God. So who do you want me to release? Jesus, son of the father, Yeshua, Barabbas? Or Jesus, Yeshua, king of the Jews? Interesting, huh? It just goes to show that Jesus' name was very, very common. And Jesus did not have a last name. Did you know that last names or surnames didn't really start until sometime in the Middle of Ages, Middle Ages of Europe? Uh, some people were given a surname depending upon certain factors, like you know what they did for a living. Like, hey, there goes John the blacksmith, which would end up as there goes John Smith, or maybe according to their appearance, you know, like their their size or their hair color or their complexion, something like that, with names like. Little, Long, White, Black, Longfellow, Blackbeard. Or maybe even their names came from their status, like the last name Knight, Squire, Bachelor. And then others just by who, you know, your father might have been. Like in my name, Scott Johnson. Or Scott John's son. So popular... Contrary to popular opinion here, Jesus did not have a last name, even though most people probably think his last name is Christ, Jesus Christ. And, you know, we say it like that, and we even see it in our English Bibles. It's right there, Jesus Christ. And people may look at that and say, hey, look, it's, it's biblical. It's right there. But it's actually technically wrong for us in this modern time to say it like that, Jesus Christ. It would have made perfect sense back in AD, you know, 30 AD Israel time, but Today, with surnames being a central part of social culture, it kind of makes it sound like Christ is his last name. Now, the word Christ in the Greek is the word Christos. In the Hebrew, it's Mashiach. And they both mean the exact same thing, which is Messiah, or anointed, or the anointed one. To anoint someone is basically to set them apart for a special purpose. And Jesus, obviously, he was set aside for a special purpose. His purpose was to bring about salvation. So to say Jesus Christ in 30 AD Jerusalem would be the equivalent socially to saying Jesus the Messiah. Just like saying Jesus carpenter or Jesus shepherd or Jesus soldier. There's a comma in between those two. The second word after a name was either a position or a description. The word Christ is a title describing who he is. In today's culture, it would be more technically better for us, be technically better for us to add the word the in there, to say Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah or the anointed one, comma, Jesus We wouldn't say Scott Banker, Scott Teacher, Scott Governor. We'd say Scott the Banker, Scott the Teacher, or Governor Scott. Jesus was either identified with saying Jesus the Christ or Jesus of Nazareth, something like that. Because you had to make that specification or someone really wouldn't know which Jesus you're referring to. Jesus of Bethany? No, 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 no. Jesus of Nazareth, you know, Joseph and Mary's boy. Oh, yeah. So when Jesus has the title of Christ after his name, he's actually making a statement. When a disciple said Jesus, Christ, 
They were making a statement. When we read Jesus Christ, it is making a statement. And the statement is this, that Jesus, this Jesus we, we are, we are thinking of here, this one from Nazareth, this one that is Joseph and Mary's boy, we believe him, this one, out of all the Jesuses in, the, in that time, we believe him to be the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, set aside to bring God's salvation. So his name has a big significance. But what's in a name? I mean, my last name doesn't really have any significance. Johnson it doesn't really mean much to me. There are tons of Johnsons. So if I did something of disgrace, it really probably wouldn't mean much to the family name of Johnson. But in some cultures, to bring disgrace and shame to a family name was of great importance. And the same is true of the family name of God. Now, you'll very rarely find me quoting scripture from the King James Version. That's probably because it's found as one of the least accurate translations out there. But, you know, that's for another episode. But I am going to quote from it here because of the, the commonality of the phrase that's used from this translation. And it is this phrase, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And it comes from Exodus 20, verse 7, which says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, that taketh his name in vain. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. This is the basis of kind of what I'm getting at here today. This section of scripture is based on Moses receiving the Ten Commandments from God himself. These were basic guidelines of how God wanted his people to act and live out. Out of all ten of the commandments, this one is number three. Now, there are tons of scriptures that people throughout history have used and misused, quoted and misquoted, and this is definitely one of them. I grew up hearing that taking the Lord's name in vain was directly connected to cursing or cussing using God's name, or even saying something in anger with his name. When growing up in my teenage years in the church, the teaching was the same. And even through college, the teaching was the same. This is basically the same. Now, I'm not saying that it's, you know, a fantastic idea to go out here and, you know, use God's name associated with cussing or cursing or in self-anger. You know, I, I personally believe it's best to just kind of keep him out of it, right? Out of respect. But this verse, this phrase, this saying, this isn't the exact meaning of this commandment. It actually goes way deeper than that. In Exodus 3, God reveals himself to Moses through a burning bush. We all know this story. He's given him instructions on helping lead his people out of Egypt by confronting the king himself, the Pharaoh. And Moses simply asks, And who shall I tell them sent me? And God says something here that is extremely revealing and it's not been it hasn't wasn't done any time in the in Genesis. So here it's done for the first time. God is about to reveal his personal name to kind of help Moses, give Moses a backbone to go and do what he's supposed to do here. He says, You can tell them I am. This is the personal name for God. I am. The Hebrew for I am is Y H. W-H. 
And since there are no vowels in the Hebrew language, all we have of God's personal name is YHWH. And it's always capitalized because of it being of a, a proper noun. And we can guess that the pronunciation would be close to Yahweh, and that's kind of what we say for it. But the reality is, is no one really knows for sure how to pronounce this YHWH. Because of this third commandment here, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. The Hebrew people were fear-stricken of mispronouncing God's personal name. They believed that this commandment was telling them not to use God's name incorrectly. More specifically, mispronouncing it. So instead of pronouncing, trying to pronounce Y-H-W-H, they just printed it out, Y-H-W-H. And then actually what they eventually just started doing is they just kind of substituted that Y-H-W-H for the word Adonai, which means Lord. That's why we see Lord so much in the Bible. They never spoke of his personal name. Only one time of year was his name ever actually verbally spoken, and that was during the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the temple. Other than that, no one ever spoke his name. God has lots of names attributed to him. Lord, God, Father, Jehovah. But I am is his personal name. It signifies that only he has been and only he will be. He transcends time. He transcends, transcends knowledge. He transcends wisdom and power. It puts him first above all, which I think is very, very fitting. I mean, it describes who he is at his core. But because of this misused, misunderstood commandment, people never really got to know the personal God. Only a handful. And as well-intentioned as it was, not pronouncing God's name was just simply a very easy and quick response to a much deeper issue of taking his name in vain. So the Hebrew word for vain is the word shav, and it basically just means empty, worthless, or false. Taking the Lord's name in vain should be closer to the idea of saying that we belong to him, but yet we just don't act like it. So the first two commandments here, they lay the foundation for all the rest, for the Hebrews to know that God alone is their God. There are no other idols, no false gods, no anything else that should ever come before him. He is their God, and they were to put him first. This third commandment here insinuates that they belong to him and that they are wearing, literally wearing his name. They have taken on a new identity, that being of the children of God. He redeemed them. He adopted them out of slavery, out of Egypt. And now they belong to him. Well, this context would make things a lot clearer, right? Because it's not as much as don't mispronounce my name. Instead, it's more along the lines of don't misrepresent my name, which is a much, much bigger deal. And it goes deeper and higher. Something that requires someone to literally act and live 
differently. The following commandments, commandments 4 through 10, they would lay out just exactly how differently God would kind of expect these guys. He wasn't just setting up rules to follow. He was setting up guidelines, guidelines for a transformed life, a different life. He brought these people out of Egypt to establish a new people, his family, bearing his name. They weren't supposed to be afraid of mispronouncing it. They were supposed to be afraid of misrepresenting it. A very different subject. They were supposed to be themselves different, to be completely transformed, which is an internal issue, not something on the surface, not an external thing that has a quick fix. So if we fast forward a few thousand years with the birth of Jesus, you know, this Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, God establishes plan B to bring salvation. Now he is going to use his own son to try and get the point across. He told Moses his personal name for a reason, to get personal. And now he's going to send his personal son for the exact same reason. Jesus' life was a direct highway for God to bring about some very, very good news. One, that he loves us. And two, he's wanting us to become family. He wants to get personal. Just like bringing his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. His plan is to do the exact same thing, to bring us out of slavery, a slavery to sin. He's willing to redeem and adopt us into his family, bearing his name just like in Exodus. Jesus' life is the living version of the Ten Commandments, a living example of a life transformed, a, a living example of a life that's been redeemed, saved from slavery or sin, a life that is bearing the name of God. That's what all of the words in the Old Testament and all of the words in the New Testament are boiling down to that idea right there. This is the goal. This is God's will. This is what he wants to get personal. So to correct a long misused, misunderstood, misquoted phrase, taking the Lord's name in vain, it just can't be summed up by simply not cussing, using the words God or Lord. It's just not that simple. It has a much deeper meaning. Taking the Lord's name in vain means not misrepresenting him. It means not taking his name or wearing his name and it being associated with nothing. It being empty or worthless. Which would mean that you belong, saying that you belong to God. But yet you just don't look like it or act like it. So if wearing his name in vain means being empty, then wouldn't you think, like logically, then the opposite of that is kind of what he's looking for, which would be wearing his name in fullness, not empty, but full, not worthless, but full of worth. So how do, how do we do that? Well, the New Testament writers make it pretty clear. And they make it clear with this terminology of the word fruit. Jesus himself describes us as being plants or like trees. That we either bear fruit or we don't. Which is kind of the equivalent of having worth or not, full or empty. 
I mean, John 15, Matthew 7, Luke 13, all these areas where Jesus teaches about lives, either being fruitful or being empty, bearing no fruit, showing no signs of health. Jesus even says that those plants that don't bear fruit, they get cut down, they get thrown into the fire. I mean, Paul in Galatians even spells out what this fruit kind of looks like in the fruit of the Spirit. When God comes into your life, bringing you into his family, something should change. We, we should be transformed, taken on this new identity, the identity of the children of God. We should look different to those around us. We should act different. We should be spending more time on the things that matter and which would be those things that God spends time on. We should, spare, we should, we should bear fruit in our lives of evidence, as evidence that God is actually in us. If we don't, then we are taking his name in vain. We are misrepresenting who he is, misrepresenting him as worthless. And a tree that does that, that does not bear any fruit that's empty, it gets cast aside. I see a generation of Christians who are taking on the name of God. You know, they're being adopted into his family, but yet they... Not really living like it or acting like it. A generation of Christians who are doing all the right quote unquote things, but yet not really transformed. They're getting involved in church, but they're not really bearing any fruit. A generation that likes, they like the idea of God, but they actually have no idea of who he really is. And the New Testament, it's pretty darn clear that an adopted life should be a fulfilled life. It should be a life that actually produces fruit. It's, 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 it's a life that has evidence that God's involved. It's a faith that shows signs that God's in here. He's involved just by what happens in my life. Those who are interested in knowing God on a very personal level... Guess what? They got to know him on a personal level. They went deeper with him and it changed them forever. But those who are only interested in knowing about God, they produce no evidence. They produce no signs of God's presence in their life. They produced no fruit. And they got left behind. I have a fear... In the church, uh, and I watched a uh, YouTube video that you can, I'll, I'll add it to the description here. It's from Francis Chan, and I couldn't agree whole, any more wholeheartedly with, with this idea. Uh, there's a great, great fear going on in the world of Christianity today and in the church. Now, I'm, I'll preface this by saying I'm, I'm not saying that what I'm getting ready to say is not happening. It is happening. It's happening on a much smaller level. And sometimes it's actually happening to involving other people who would not ever claim to be Christians. But I guess I just don't see a lot of transformation happening in, the people's, in people's lives today. And I don't typically see a big impact into a hurting and lost world. I see a lot of people going to church. And I see a lot of people sporting t-shirts and bumper stickers and social posts all promoting their church or, or post-sharing scripture or clever spiritual thoughts. 
but not a lot of people involved in what God is already doing all around us every day, which is the dirty work of just wearing the name of God, being a person who has evidently been transformed. There's evidence. I mean, I mean, you know, we've been redeemed. We have a direct highway to freedom from slavery of sin. And that should turn us into people who are eternally grateful and humble and loving. It should dramatically change us to the point where we just can't help but show the love of God by getting our hands dirty every day with people that we come in contact with every day. People should easily see God through our lives. And in that, we would be truly taking the Lord's name, not in vain. I'm just not interested in keeping my life basically the same and just adding in a touch of religion. I'm, I don't want to be like the rich young ruler. You know, he, he was pretty much happy with his life and only wanted just to add this little bit of Jesus into it. I'm not interested in just keeping things with God on a surface level. And you know what? Neither is he. I'm looking to go deeper with him. I'm wanting that journey of going deeper to literally transform me into his adopted son. For that to bring me into his family fully and for that redemption to show as evidence through my daily life to people around me. I'm wanting to wear God's name in fullness and with worth, to represent him truthfully, for people to see him through me, my life. That is exactly what God has been working toward for thousands of years, even up to this very second. He wants to get personal with us. His desire is to redeem us from a life that was just not meant to be and to transform us into the lives we were always supposed to live. So what's in a name? Potentially everything. I'd like to encourage you to be willing to rethink, research, and rediscover the mysteries of God, the life of Jesus, and the purpose of the ecclesia. But just remember, it all starts with a willing spirit to stop and think. If you spend any time learning about this Jesus in any of the four books dedicated to his life in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you're going to quickly see and find out that his message actually revolved around this very same mindset. Stop what you're doing and think about why you're doing it thanks for your time i'll be back very soon with a new episode discussing the truths of christianity that you may never have known before some may sound crazy but true